Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, we want to welcome you to the, to the uh, second, second in this uh, pair of wonderful speeches by our Hitchcock professor this year, Roger Shepard. For any who weren't able to make it last time, I'll just point the highlights of a long and distinguished career include a PhD at Yale and a postdoctoral time at Harvard, senior scientist at Bell Labs, and for many years now, professor at Stanford. Professor Shepard has received every medal of distinction and research that a psychologist could get, I think, including National Academy of Sciences and the Presidential Medal of Science. Last time he gave us insight into his philosophy of mind, showing us how, how he's been able to use beautiful experiments and insightful logic to give an understanding some of the most basic psychological processes, such things as perception and consciousness. At the center of this work has been the assertion that we don't simply perceive a pattern of sensory information falling on our receptors, but rather we hear and see and touch the world as it is. That's the job of perception. From this, he's extrapolated to the view that mental activity is likely to be the same for external stimuli and those generated in our heads and proceeds to show us that the same rules of descriptive, descriptive sensory perception apply to such internal mental states as imagery. It would be impossible to describe all the areas of cognitive science to which he's applied such wisdom, so I'll just mention one. While at Bed Labs, he helped to develop the use of similarity ratings, that is where people judge the similarity of objects, to generate a mathematical description of how information is processed, stored, and used in the brain. The use of multidimensional scaling, which is a technique that he was a major contributor into in development, produced a revolution in cognitive psychology, I think that's fair to say. One place where these techniques was particularly powerful was in the description of mental organization of auditory pitch, and uh, as many of you know, that hearing is the, the primary sense. Uh, in scaling pitch, Professor Shepard showed us was able to show that the, the mental representation, that is how pitch is stored in the mind of the individual, was well described by two dimensions corresponding to a frequency analysis and corresponding to elements that were organized in a spiral, much like that of a partially coiled spring. If you can imagine a spring going around and around. Um, I didn't have a picture, I'm sorry. Pitch height is a dimension corresponding to frequency analysis in the human cochlea. And that rises continuously along the spring. While musical pitch, the dimension to which we attach names such as A, B flat, B, and C, was distributed according to lines that run along the length of the spring, of the spiral, cutting across it at every loop. For this reason, for one thing, musical pitch repeats itself for every doubling of the tonal frequency that, that is at the octave. Ever the creative artist, Professor Shepard saw the similarity between this multidimensional space and a visual illusion that was made famous by Escher. Uh, this, is, this is the famous uh, ever-ascending staircase. Um, it's a little hard to see when you know what you're looking at because the picture is not great, but I think you can see along the top in the upper right-hand corner, of course, is the model from which the painting was made. Um, for his auditory analog, Shepard presented a train of related frequencies that rose continuously, disappearing at the high frequency end as they moved out of a filter and replaced, continuously replaced at the low frequency end. 
What you hear is an ambiguous pitch that seems to rise forever. Can we hear that, please? Circularity in pitch judgment. Two examples of scales that illustrate circularity in pitch judgment are presented. The first is a discrete scale of Roger and Shepard. The second is a continuous scale of Jean-Claude Risset. Professor Shepard has, has said it's okay for me to put a plug in for the fact that Jean-Claude Risset will be here from France next week giving a concert on Tuesday evening at the Center for New Music and Audio Technology on Art Street. Well, it's time for me to uh, sit down. Before I do, I want to point out to you, if you ever want to see a beautiful melding of science and art, I suggest that you buy a book called Mind Sights by Roger Shepard. And... Um, tell you that all of us, and certainly in, in psychology and behavior sciences, have been extremely thrilled to have him here today, and I want to thank him for coming to Berkeley. Um, so I will sit down and let him present a talk, which I hear is the first time it's ever been done. So for a world premiere, Dr. Shepard. and visual systems work a little better today than they did on Tuesday. Um, topic for today is, uh, uh, can everyone hear me all right? Uh, good. Uh, the grounds of science and of ethics, and so we'll start with the grounds of science and uh, a little while later move on to the grounds of ethics. Um, and uh, to start with, I want to talk about uh, what I call three uh, realms of, of reality. Uh, briefly, uh, my experience, your experience, and the world we experience. Um, but I won't take them up in quite that order. I'll start with uh, my experience. My view is that from, um, I'm not sure quite where to stand. But um, from an epistemological uh, standpoint, um, I believe that in science, I must start from my own uh, experience. That is, I should not start with what my parents told me or what I read in a textbook or what is in scriptures or any other uh, external source. I shouldn't take any of this uh, on faith. I should start with what I can 
verify the truth for myself. Uh, science, I believe, is ultimately an activity of the mind, as far as we know, the human mind, but there may be other beings, uh, in fact, far more advanced than we are, that have also developed science. Um, but it is an activity of mind. If you take, uh, if you put, set mind aside, what do we have in science? Well, we have uh, textbooks and articles filled with text and graphics and equations. But all of these things are just so many, just arrangements of uh, molecules without any uh, meaning or significance in themselves until some mind understands what these equations mean or what the text is is uh, saying. So uh, I think, as I say, mind, science starts in the human mind and um, uh, I, we may have a little problem here in that <laughs> I was trying to stand somewhere where I could see everybody and everyone could see me, which probably puts me right in front of the camera that's going to try to record what's projected up there. Uh, maybe, maybe I can stand over here. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so I have to start with what what I can verify is is true about the world for myself. Uh, this this is of course a view of science that has been uh, called uh, methodological solipsism. It's a view that was espoused by uh, Percy W. Bridgman, a Nobel laureate in physics, uh, for example. Uh, very eloquently. Uh, now, of course, uh, I haven't developed all of science myself, uh, from, uh, say, in physical science, from Archimedes up through quantum mechanics. Uh, uh, that would be a little much to claim. Uh, so how can I say that uh, I can start with myself? Well. I would claim that there is an inductive uh, process in which uh, I find, first of all, regularities in my experience, and I try to account for these. And uh, this is the way I think science has developed. And last time I talked about how, through thought experiments, one can develop uh, principles that uh, uh, have scientific validity by a kind of Socratic dialogue on what the internalized knowledge one already has about the world, um, largely thanks to natural selection over uh, vast, uh, uncountable numbers of uh, generations, plus uh, individual learning, of course. Um, and um, one makes the various inductions from one's experience. And one of the kinds of inductions one makes is about things one reads about science. So if you, uh, you can come to rely on what certain other people or certain textbooks and so on tell you because you verify for yourself, either through thought experiments or actual experiments or in various ways, or consistency among uh, different sources that uh, these principles are true. If you have doubts, you can try to check them out in various ways. Well, this is, takes a long story to elaborate all this, but uh, so you can build up from initial starting point of this methodological solipsism to uh, arrive at the notion that behind 
experience, which in which you find regularities, there must be some existence uh, that uh, accounts for this this regularity. So this is the, so I've started with from uh, my experience and arrive at the notion that there is some uh, world apart from my private experience that uh, has some general principles that explains the regularity of it. And the third uh, step then is to notice that these other persons in my experience seem to also have minds because they arrive at principles often before I do and then I can verify that those are correct. So somehow there has been a mental process arriving at uh, knowledge in some other uh, mind and um, then I can uh, verify that uh, that that is also correct. So we have then these three uh, kinds of uh, realms of reality, uh, you might say, of uh, my experience, some noumenal world behind that experience, and then uh, other minds that presumably also have experience uh, not unlike my own. Uh, now when I say I start with my experience, I want to emphasize that I do not mean by my experience the kind of thing that was suggested by the um, some of the empiricist philosophers who talked about sense data and so on, where there seemed to be a suggestion that what you're dealing with is a quantistic, uh, quantalistic uh, kind of world of dots of colored patches like a two-dimensional picture, something on the retina. I made a great pains uh, uh, last time. The point that what we represent is the three-dimensional world and objects in it, and in fact the relations among things, not just physical objects. Um, so here I would uh, align myself with William James and his uh, radical empiricism where he pointed out that things that are given in experience include things like uh, relations that are quite abstract things. And I'll keep coming back to this notion of the things that are given in experience. Um, so what I experience is actual, I experience objects uh, or the appearances of objects and their relations and so on. Uh, that does not mean that I might not find that my expectations about these objects are, are uh, wrong. It may look like an apple, but it turns out that it's uh, a wax imitation of an apple when I try to bite into it or something. Um, and in fact, uh, this is a fact about uh, these uh, uh, objects that we experience is that they have infinite uh, or inexhaustible implications. Uh, so we can never uh, fully uh, exhaust what we expect might uh, find about these objects, uh, which makes a very different thing from just the raw sensory patches of color that we can also attend to to some extent. Um, so, I think uh, that's enough for that, and um, move on to what I think about the nature of uh, theoretical science and the hierarchy of scientific laws. My view is that over the history of science, and I'll particularly uh, talk about physics as an example, what we see is this um, development 
of course, of more and more general theories that account for more and more phenomena in more and more uh, succinct uh, ways. And I indicated last time when I thought that a lot of this development was through a process of thought experiments in which one comes up with some uh, tentative principles uh, and then tries to think about extending them to more extreme conditions or, or tries to relate them to other principles one's arrived at and discovers some inconsistencies or problems of the sort that I alluded to last time, such as Einstein's, the problems he found when he imagined traveling at the speed of light and finding that what he would experience uh, would not be consistent with Maxwell's equations and so on. Uh, so there's a constant process of trying to arrive at more and more general um, theories and just summarize it here. Um, just some of the station points in this process, starting with Archimedean statics uh, up through Newtonian mechanics and um, Maxwell's electrodynamics and special relativity and quantum uh, mechanics, which, um, and each one, now it's, it's not at all the case, I would claim, that uh, these are just uh, arbitrary uh, things. There's a big difference, I think, between uh, things like fads or uh, religious dogmas and so on, which, where one may replace another uh, at, but um, there's no, generally speaking, there seems to be little in the way of progress. It's not that one subsumes the other as a special case, as we have here, where um, uh, special relativity uh, subsumes uh, Newtonian mechanics as a special case, and general relativity subsumes special relativity as a special case, and, and similarly, quantum, similar relation of quantum mechanics to uh, Newtonian mechanics, and so on. Uh, so there's. Uh, it's a cumulative thing where we arrive at more and more general uh, equations that uh, account for more and more phenomena. And part of the uh, thing that makes it so compelling that there must be some, something beyond immediate experience is the great orderliness here, the fact that uh, some equation of this sort can account for so much in experience, but not everything by any means. Uh, science has not uh, uh, yet uh, accounted for qualia or for a value, and this is something, of course, I'll be touching on later uh, in this uh, talk. Uh, there's a kind of prevailing empiricist view that the reason we need to collect more data all the time is that we always have a number of theories and uh, these theories uh, may, may have several theories that account for the data that you have and so to, to eliminate some of these theories and arrive more at the correct one you have to collect more data. I would claim however we have never had a single theory that accounts for uh, the experience of uh, any ordinary person uh, on the street. Uh, that uh, so far the theories have only accounted for a portion of this 
If we had a single theory that would just account for what any of you already know, we would be far advanced from where we are now. Um, at present, the two, the two pinnacles of our achievement in, in science, I would say, certainly in physics, are general relativity and uh, quantum mechanics or quantum field theory. Uh, these, these two theories are remarkably uh, self-consistent. It seems to be very difficult to make any small adjustments in either theory. Um, they just seem to be locked in by considerations of internal consistency and so on. Was, uh, um, and, the, and anyone who could come up with a theory, but these two theories, um, whoops, missing a figure. These, uh, well, sorry, that got out of order. These two, oh, here it is good. So we have these two glorious theories of which uh, no inconsistency or problem has been found with either one, and yet they do not quite fit with each other. Uh, so if you trace down from the body of the elephant to its legs, you will see a certain mismatch, and that's the problem we have with relativity and quantum mechanics, and the main effort in theoretical physics has been trying to find a theory that will uh, subsume these, and that would be a great achievement without collecting any more data whatsoever, just to find a theory from which these two can be found as uh, special cases, and maybe superstring theory uh, will prove to be that theory, but it's uh, a little too early perhaps to uh, tell. Now, if you ask, why does a theory have the particular form it does? Why is the, why is the equation uh, of general relativity or quantum mechanics, why does it have the particular form it is? Well, at any stage of science, you can ask this question, and there's really no way of answering it until you develop another level of the theory, and then you can say, well, it turns out that this uh, equation has a particular form it does because it's a special case that we expect under these conditions of, of this more general equation that we now find to hold for a much broader range of things. And at each stage you have this thing. You can answer the why question by referring to the next level up. But when you get up to the, to the final level, you have no level above you, and you ask, well, why uh, does this... Uh, theory or this law have the form it does, there doesn't seem to be any answer. And there seems to be really three possibilities if you're looking for the ultimate laws. And here again, I'm still kind of talking about physics, but I think of this as ultimately a more general matter. Uh, I've only been able to think of three possibilities. And if you have some other one, I'd be glad to hear about it. It could be that the ultimate laws, if there are such things, um, well, yeah, there is kind of a fourth possibility, namely that there, uh, there is no ultimate law, there's just an infinite series of more and more general things and that never comes to an end. But that the laws of physics just happen to be the only self-consistent uh, set and, uh, and therefore are somehow necessary, which is the second possibility. So then it's not arbitrary, it's just kind of a mathematical and necessary fact. Uh, the third possibility, of course, is that all 
possibilities are realized. And this is the possibility that uh, most vividly brought forward by uh, my Stanford colleague in uh, quantum cosmology, Andre Lindy, originally from the uh, Soviet Union, uh, who proposes that the universe that we know is just one of many universes that keep sprouting out from each other, and each universe that uh, sprouts off of another universe uh, breaks symmetry in a different way, so we have different um, fundamental laws in each one. And over this, so this is an, again, a, as you know, there was the steady state theory of uh, cosmology, which was largely discredited when evidence seemed to weigh uh, more and more heavily for the Big Bang cosmology. Uh, but now this, this is consistent with the Big Bang cosmology, but becomes a steady state picture of the whole enchilada, if you will, uh, on a much higher level. And we're just in one of these sort of bubbles. The whole vast universe, as far as we can see with the most powerful telescopes, is just a small part of one of these bubbles. Uh, but in all possible, all possible ways of breaking symmetry and all possible sets of physical laws uh, exist somewhere according to this view. So that's the third possibility. Um, well, I think this is, I mentioned this because it seems somewhat relevant to uh, issues that I'm struggling with here uh, that have to do with ethics, and that's the question is, what is the meaning of, is there a purpose to it all, uh, ultimately? Um, now, last time I talked uh, about uh, the role of thought experiments in discovering physical laws and emphasize the, that there, there's a, this kind of process of trying to develop principles, converting our implicit knowledge uh, into explicit principles by this kind of Socratic process and by um, access to one kind of implicit knowledge we have. There, well, there's maybe you might say two kinds. One is has to do with our implicit knowledge about uh, the world, the physical world, but the other is implicit knowledge about uh, mathematical principles, uh, things like symmetries and so on, which, um, and for me, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this inquiry, um, the traditional dividing line between uh, empirical science and mathematics has become uh, rather blurred. But I, I, let me just take the example of the principle of symmetry and how that helps us arrive at uh, knowledge. I, just to throw this up again, um, I gave this thought experiment uh, attributed to Galileo about falling bodies. And it, the conclusion rested uh, directly on the principle of symmetry here that uh, if these three bricks are identical, then they should all drop at the same rate. It doesn't matter if you attach two of them together and make a heavier object, uh, they should still drop at the same rate because of this principle of symmetry. The bricks are identical and everything should be uh, unchanged under permutations of, of these bricks. Uh, I mentioned that very simple thought experiments can lead to uh, three, each of Newton's three laws of motion, but I didn't take time to go into it. But let's take the action and reaction law which has been generally regarded as the, the most um, uh, uniquely Newtonian of these because the other two 
do have precursors in uh, Galileo and uh, even Descartes. But let's take the action-reaction law, that for every action there's an equal-opposite reaction. It's a very simple thought experiment. You just uh, uh, imagine uh, Newton uh, out there, uh, or uh, Newton imagining himself out there with, in two little, with two little boats out in the middle of a lake. And if he pushes, you could imagine with his feet on the uh, one boat and his hands on the other, and if he pushes, uh, just by symmetry again, it's clear that it's not going to be that one boat's stationary and the other one goes off. They're both going to have to go off equally. Well, there's extensions and elaborations of that ex thought experiment that uh, uh, take us further. But it's a very, uh, uh, it's again an illustration of uh, the role of symmetry, and I'll come to that uh, a number of times here. Now, over the history of uh, physics, you find over and over again uh, that people, of course, did experiments that played a very important role in the development of physics. But um, it's striking to me how often, after they did the experiment and found out how it came out, they said, like uh, Niels Bohr did when uh, quoted by John Wheeler, when he said, uh, what fools we've been. Uh, we now see that everything has to be exactly as it is. Often they see after the fact that, yeah, it couldn't have been any uh, other way. I had a little bit of a pause <clears throat> when I ran across uh, a book uh, by um, Rudolf Harles, another uh, uh, Nobel laureate, I believe. Uh, the book was called uh, Surprises in Theoretical Physics. I thought, oh dear, uh, here's a case where it just turned out that uh, you do the experiment and you get surprised and you couldn't have foreseen it. So I opened the book to see what he's saying, and in the preface, I found what he said was, all the surprises I discuss have rational explanations. We should not have been surprised if only we had thought through sufficiently deeply in advance. So... Um, um, So let me move ahead to talking then. Uh, if, if sort of mathematical notions such as symmetry are fundamental uh, in arriving at knowledge, even about the physical world, um, maybe we need to think a little more about mathematics. And here we come. Uh, well, let me. Let me um, remind you for the, of what I mentioned last time, that it often seems, again, here's the principle of symmetry operating. Uh, I pointed out last time how, I won't go through it again, but how Archimedes' uh, types of thought experiments on the beam balance, again, just using symmetry leads to the law of the lever, which seems to be a physical uh, a law. Uh, but it's heavily based on just the idea of, of symmetry. Um, and actually, you probably can't even read this from the back. Um, but Archimedes' uh, investigations into, again, into what seemed to be physical principles um, or uh, like his investigations into mathematical principles. And in fact, um, I guess it's... Um, 
Edouard Glass, uh, who's uh, in the Department of Mathematics at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, has uh, written a recent paper that was very interesting in this regard, where he goes through some major developments in mathematics and points out that they were developed by essentially thought experiments very much like the ones we know about in, in physics. Um, it's not a matter of always starting with some axioms and then just mechanically cranking through till you get to theorems, but rather the theorems are guessed at often by uh, analogies and by uh, physical metaphors and so on, and then once they convince themselves that the, that the um, conclusion is probably true, then they try to construct a more formal uh, argument. In fact, uh, the same person um, argues, I think, persuasively that the any axiomatic system in mathematics is of um, real interest was preceded by a more intuitive understanding of the phenomena. At uh, any rate, Archimedes' quadrature, the parabola, that means his arriving at the um, area of a segment of a parabola was actually um, done by uh, imagining uh, operations on a beam balance like the ones I uh, uh, talked about, but I won't go through uh, uh, the details here. Now, you talk, uh, when you think about how we um, arrive at mathematical knowledge, uh, there are a number of ways, for example, of uh, convincing oneself of the truth of the Pythagorean theorem that um, if you have a triangle with sides A, B, and a, a right triangle with sides A, B, and the hypotenuse C, uh, the uh, Pythagorean theorem says, of course, that C squared equals A squared plus B squared. And uh, there are ways to convince you of that just by uh, constructing these uh, implied squares on the um, three sides of the triangle. Uh, there's many ways of proving this theorem by um, different kinds of pictures, but this is a very uh, particularly simple one where, um, let's see, yeah. So uh, if you construct this line, uh, drop from, construct a line from uh, this vertex uh, to uh, so that it meets the hypotenuse orthogonally, dividing the original triangle in these two parts, A and B, then you can imagine sort of cutting out this square with this triangle, putting it, rotating it down there, and then you take this one with this triangle and put it down there, and this one with this triangle down here. When we know that the area A plus the area B equals the area, the total area, because you can just see it. Uh, so, and you also know that there has to be a proportional relation between these areas of the triangle and these areas down here. So, just immediately you can see uh, that the Pythagorean formula holds. So, it seems when you do that kind of, um, when you achieve that kind of understanding of a mathematical fact uh, by that kind of a thought experiment, really, uh, the process does not feel any different from the one that uh, Archimedes went through, or the one I attributed to as a possible one Archimedes went through in deciding about the uh, beam balance. In fact, there's even a kind of an isomorphism between the Pythagorean theorem and the beam balance, which I show here. You had uh, rods of some uh, material of constant density, uh, 
and um, you uh, decide to put the two shorter sides out uh, on the beam balance in a distance uh, proportional to their lengths, and the third one out on the other side of the fulcrum proportional to its length uh, by the um, uh, Archimedes uh, principle for the lever, this, this will balance. And so the balancing is a necessary and sufficient condition for the Pythagorean uh, formula holding. Um, now, one thing that often s seems to be a fundamental difference between physics, say, and mathematics is that, um, as I've said or implied, uh, in physics, we deal with objects that are essentially uh, inexhaustible. Um, so that, for example, take something like water, the substance water. Well, there's no guarantee, there's never any guarantee, no matter how far science advances, seemingly, that we might not discover something further or deeper about water. Uh, certainly, when we learned that water is H2O, uh, we learned something new. and we, and we there have been many further uh, advances in water. So every actual object is, in this sense, inexhaustible. Whereas in mathematics, we're dealing, say, with, uh, as in the cases I was talking about, with things like points and lines. These are constructions of the human mind, you might say. And a point and a line is something very simple. You can see everything that's there. There's nothing more to be discovered. No matter how far science is going to advance, we're not going to learn something new about a point or about a line, you might say. Um, but uh, what this doesn't recognize is that as soon as you deal with the relations among these things, uh, we begin to get into something that may be inexhaustible. So if you take something, perhaps the simplest kind of uh, non-trivial figure made of straight lines in the plane is a triangle. Now, if you have a triangle, and this, of course, is an equilateral triangle, uh, it has clearly a, a center, and there's no ambiguity about where that center is in the triangle. But that's because it's an equilateral triangle, a very symmetrical figure. Uh, Douglas Hofstadter gave a while back a talk uh, in the physics department at Stanford, which uh, drew my attention to the incredible complexity that is implied in this, this figure as simple as a triangle. If it's not a a uh, symmetrical figure. It's not an equilateral triangle, but an arbitrary triangle. Uh, then you ask, well, what, what is the center of this triangle? Well, it turns out there's, it may be an uh, inexhaustible matter. I mean, there's the, uh, there's a so-called centroid or barycenter, which uh, shown here, which can be arrived at in a couple of ways. One is it can be the intersection of the lines from each vertex to the midpoint of the opposite side. But it's also the, uh, the, the center of gravity, so that if this is made out of some uniform material, you balance it on that particular point, it will balance, but not on any other point. And the uh, center of gravity was something very fundamental in much of Archimedes' work. So that's one center. But there's um, numerous other centers. The, the circumcenter, which would be the center of the circle uh, circumscribed around the triangle, which turns out to be the same as um, the point at the intersection of lines orthogonal to the midpoints of the three sides. Uh, there's the center of the, the in-center, which is the center of inscribed 
circle, which turns out to be the same as the intersection of the bisectors of the three uh, vertices of the triangle. Uh, there's the orthocenter, which is the uh, point of intersection of the three altitudes of the triangle. There's the uh, uh, center of the nine-point circle, which is a fascinating uh, thing, which I won't go uh, into. Uh, there's the uh, speaker center, which uh, I also won't go into, but it's uh, easily constructed from that same triangle. There's the Nagel center, which is constructed another way from that same triangle. And in fact, these centers uh, are all different. Um, so which one is the real center? Well, and how many centers are there? Well, th those centers I already showed you fall on two lines. There's beautiful symmetries between all these things. They all fall on two lines called the uh, Euler segment and uh, uh, offset of repose to call the other one the Nagel segment. Um, and uh, there's all kinds of symmetries and relations, which I can't go to. You, you can construct, well, no, I can't go into it. Uh, and in fact, uh, I have reason to believe, and I could go and make the argument if we had time, that there's in fact an infinite number of possible centers you can define with more elaborate constructions. But all of these centers, although they're different centers, when the triangle becomes perfectly symmetrical, they all collapse into the same uh, point. So uh, there's an, an exhaustibility there. Uh, even though we know what points and lines are, we don't know what all the implications are until we've uh, worked them out. And we probably never worked them all out. And of course, I was just talking about plane geometry, plane Euclidean geometry. And of course, there's uh, mathematicians develop more and more abstract uh, geometries in various uh, spaces. And there's a whole hierarchy here much like the hierarchy of physical um, uh, law of physical principles. Um, okay. Now, uh, th this leads to the big old question. Is mathematics an invention or discovery? Are, are the truths of mathematics that we come up with, are these just human inventions? Or are they, or is there some uh, objective reality to them beyond? Well, I'm definitely, uh, as a result of thinking about this, uh, come to the Platonist view that these facts of mathematics uh, antedate any human uh, development of mathematics. Um, the mathematical truths are, are, of course, necessary, and one way of, of people have talked about it, saying, well, it's just, it, which makes it sound like it's just um, a human uh, invention or uh, construction or something, is to say, well, let's take one of the simplest kinds of mathematical statements we might think of, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, one kind of thing one could say is, it's just 2 plus 2 and 4 are just two ways of naming the same situation in the world. If you had four objects, you could... Uh, characterize these as two plus two objects, or as four, it's just in a way, a different way of naming the same situation. And it, sound, it sort of makes it first seem like this is just a human construction. There's nothing objectively 
There's no objective fact that corresponds to 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's just a different way of naming the same situation. One might say the same thing about 2 times 3 equals 6, or 3 times 2 equals 6. Um, and of course, if you take the uh, natural numbers, it seems like we're dealing with a pretty uh, simple kind of thing. We can have uh, one object, doesn't matter what these are, two objects, three objects, and these objects can be considered under symmetry as mutually interchangeable. There is no significance. And it's a very simple situation, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't, because of this, these uh, facts about, um, as I, um, well, let, let me talk, return to this picture. Uh, what does multiplication correspond to? Well, it, it can be seen as just corresponding to different ways of grouping things. Two times two, three equals six is saying that you can have uh, two groups of three things or three group, groups of two things. It's the same thing as having uh, six things. Uh, but of course, when you go to all of the natural numbers, of which I only showed the first 20 in the interest of time, uh, uh, there are many ways of, uh, uh, as we go down this series, we find uh, some of them uh, can be grouped into a certain number of groups of the same number of items. And of course, those are the ones that have uh, factors. And the ones that cannot be so grouped, like uh, five, except uh, into the group itself or a separate group from each item, um, those are those that uh, can only be grouped in that way don't have any subgroups of equal numbers in them uh, are the prime numbers. Uh, so uh, there's something, there's some, these some special numbers that are the prime numbers that are scattered through all of the natural numbers. Uh, and there's kind of an asymmetry here that is, we can think of, as I indicated before, um, two groups of three or three groups of two, and that's kind of uh, asymmetrical, but of course we can uh, we can represent them in a somewhat different way that makes it more symmetrical, uh, as shown here. So um, here we if uh, here's the example of two times three. So we have if we think of the grouping in the vertical, the upper group and the lower group, then it's uh, two groups of three. Or if we think of the left, middle, and right group, then it's uh, three groups of two. So now we have a more symmetrical representation. And all of the numbers that have these um, integer factors um, can be represented in this more compact form in terms of uh, blocks of various sorts. At some point, you're going to get need more than three dimensions of your space. but. Uh, and then the prime numbers, of course, are the ones that can't be grouped in that way, and they just have to be strung out like that. Well, uh, so the integers, uh, in a sense, uh, may not be just the uh, inventions of the human mind, because uh, we can't foresee, uh, we don't know how these primes are distributed. Um, one thing, uh, there's an interesting anecdote about uh, the Indian mathematician uh, Srinivasa Ramanujan, who was a very, uh, as many of you may know the story, 
He was, uh, came from a very poor family in a remote village in India, and uh, on his own developed uh, uh, a lot of uh, mathematical relations. This is uh, a letter when somebody discovered he was coming up with these things, they persuaded him to uh, write to J.H. Uh, Hardy at uh, uh, Cambridge, was it? I think. Um, uh, and so he, he wrote down a bunch of these uh, identities involving infinite series and whatnot, which I'm sure you can't see from down there. Uh, and uh, Hardy was quite uh, astonished, uh, took, um, took Hardy and some of his uh, co-workers, uh, eminent mathematician and some of his co-workers, a great deal of effort to establish the satisfaction of some of these identities were in fact uh, true, they just seem to have come to Ramanujan, nobody knows how. Uh, and the interesting thing about uh, Ramanujan was that uh, every one of these numbers, at least up to some large number, had an individual identity form. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just something like, a, like this, as it might be for some of us, where there's just numbers that get bigger and bigger, but, uh, but for him, every number had some internal structure. And there's this interesting story in which, um, unfortunately, Ramanujan died at an uh, early age. He uh, developed tuberculosis. And when he was in the hospital uh, there in England, uh, and Hardy went to visit him, uh, Hardy, um, just to make conversation, uh, mentioned to uh, that in coming to the hospital that day, he noticed that the taxi cab he was in was number 1729. And he just commented that that seemed to party a very dull number. And uh, to which Ramanujan immediately said, no, no, Hardy, no, Hardy. It's a very interesting number. It is the smallest number expressible as the sum of two cubes in two different ways. I mean, Hardy, I mean, uh, Ramanujan immediately knew that this number could be expressed as one cube plus 12 cubed, or alternatively as nine cubed plus uh, 10 cubed. Uh, so we had this kind of structure somehow immediately available. So any number for him had some individual properties of that sort. Well, this um, raises the question of what kinds of things the human mind <laughs> Uh, capable. There's these um, idios savants, of course, who are some of whom, well, many of whom were um, and are, uh, seem to be mentally retarded in some ways or highly autistic. Uh, often, often they uh, can't uh, do the most uh, ordinary things for any of us, and yet for some reason their brain has developed this extraordinary ability to uh, do calculations or um, things like uh, some of them are calendrical um, calculators where you uh, give them any date in the remote past or remote future and very quickly they can tell you what day of the week that falls on. Um, whereas somebody even using a calculator may take a long time to do that. Uh, some of these stories about these people, it's hard to know um, what how much to believe of it. Uh, the most extraordinary, I think, that I know of is the one that Oliver Sacks uh, reports in which 
In the back ward of the mental hospital, he found these two identical boys, um, identical twin boys, who uh, couldn't add two plus two and get four, um, and had very minimal communication abilities and just sort of sat back there. But uh, they would, one would, uh, what they did, and he could never get them engaged in any kind of interaction. They just ignored him, but they sat there and every once in a while, one of them would call out a three-digit number, and the other one would light up and seem to be pleased, and then the other one would call out a three-digit number. And uh, that's the only thing that seemed to interest them. And uh, according to Oliver Sacks, uh, he wrote down some of these numbers, and then went to a mathematician friend and said, is there anything special about these numbers? And the mathematician said, these are all prime numbers. Um, so uh, he went back, he claims, uh, he got to a table of prime numbers and, and went back and uh, again he couldn't get them interested in interacting with him but he just sat there while they were doing their thing and then he at one point called uh, a four digit number which was he got from this table of prime numbers and there was a bit of a pause and then these two boys just lit up and then they started calling out four digit prime numbers. I find that uh, pretty uh, Astonishing. I'm not sure I even believe it, but uh, uh, but it does raise the possibility that possibly by some kind of um, uh, mutation or something. Uh, I mean, we have already come up with remarkable new abilities. Maybe some possibilities like this could arise. Anyway, I would like to uh, just quote from Dr. Berkeley from. Uh, Julia Robinson, who was uh, a professor of mathematics here uh, and specialized in number theory, and said, I have always had a basic liking for the natural numbers. To me, they are the one real thing we can, we can conceive of a chemistry that is different from ours or a biology, but we cannot conceive of a different mathematics of numbers. What is proved about numbers will be a fact in any universe. So this is uh, uh, fits with uh, my notion that mathematics really deals with something objectively true, that uh, beings evolved on some other planet would come up with, uh, if they developed sufficiently in this line, they would come up with the same um, principles. Um, and these things seem certainly to be in the human mind. Now, in some of my own research with some students, uh, we applied multi-dimensional scaling to judgments of similarity among numbers. And we did many, many studies, but I can only report on one aspect, and that is if you ask people for the similarities uh, just of rows of dots, uh, in effect, you ask them for similarities of numbers in this kind of form, um, and then apply multi-dimensional scaling to their similarity uh, judgments, uh, it doesn't matter whether the numbers are presented as um, Arabic numerals, which that stands for, or spoken words, that is the spoken names like 0, 1, 2, and so on, or rows, actual rows of dots. It doesn't matter which form you present the pairs of numbers and get their ratings of similarity. Um, when you ask them to judge the similarity of rows of dots, you get one-dimensional, multi-dimensional scaling solutions, the same for each of these cases, 
um, and there's some noise in here, of course, but what you see overall is a kind of Weber-Fechner thing where this, the perceived uh, difference between the numbers gets less as you get to larger uh, numbers. But it's just a one-dimensional, simple thing of that sort. On the other hand, if, um, and you may not be able to see everything on this slide, but if you ask them to judge the similarity of the numbers themselves, that is the abstract concept of the numbers, it doesn't again matter whether you present them as Arabic numerals, as the spoken words, or rows of dots. Again, you get the same solution in each of these three cases from the similarity data, but it's a very different solution now, in which in each case, you have a line, a horizontal line, dividing all the even numbers from the odd numbers. You have these groups, um, Here's the powers of two. In each case, they show up as a separate group. Uh, here's the powers of three, multiples of three. And in every case, you can even divide by a slanting line all of the composite numbers from the prime numbers. So somehow, some of this structure is in the minds of uh, college students, which were our subjects. And furthermore, there's been some very interesting empirical research in recent years by uh, a number of people, uh, Karen Wynn at the University of Arizona on uh, very young infants, uh, Mark Hauser at Harvard on monkeys, uh, other people on uh, birds, uh, showing uh, not only that they have a concept of number, but they even have um, a, 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 that monkeys and very young infants have uh, some conception of um, uh, arithmetic relations and of um, uh, operations such as, as addition and subtraction. Uh, so it seems to be uh, some of these mathematical facts are very uh, uh, deeply embedded. But now as to whether mathematics is a human invention again, Although the concept of a prime or a composite number is very simple and clear, that doesn't mean that we know which numbers are prime and composite. And of course, it takes uh, enormous calculation for a large number to, to determine whether it has integer factors or not. Um, and what I would claim is that the outcome of such a calculation uh, is determined before the human race ever appeared. I mean, it's, it's still a case that a certain number is prime or not. It doesn't something that we can choose at our own, uh, on a, it's not something of our own choosing. And of course, this is their hierarchies of uh, laws of physics and their hierarchies of space, types of space, as I showed. There's also hierarchy of uh, types of numbers, and I've just been talking about the natural numbers. Uh, but there's this whole hierarchy going up to complex numbers, which have been developed by mathematics. And, um, and in fact, uh, everything is connected with everything else. And uh, some of the proofs of the, well, there's the prime number theorem, uh, which says that the there's this question of how these primes are distributed among the natural numbers, and the prime number theorem says that the number of primes less than or equal to any integer n, um, the ratio of that to n over log n approaches 1 as n goes to infinity. This is a very fundamental theorem in number theory, and yet uh, the, the um, uh, proofs 
of this have depended upon uh, complex numbers. And in fact, uh, what is widely regarded as the outstanding, uh, especially given now the proof of Fermat's last theorem, the sort of the outstanding uh, unsolved problem in mathematics is widely regarded to be the question of uh, proof for the Riemann hypothesis, uh, which would entail the truth of the prime number theorem. Um, and I won't, in the interest of time, I won't to go through it. Uh, calculations have shown for the first 70 million, uh, um, well, I won't go, it's been shown true for a vast number of uh, numbers, but it uh, still remains uh, unproved, but it depends on the uh, uh, complex, uh, complex numbers. Uh, and now you, it's often said that the complex numbers are uh, something that were, uh, came about because of quadratic equations, uh, uh, trying to solve for x in some quadratic equations, you come up with these uh, square roots of uh, negative numbers. But in fact, uh, as was pointed out, the same person uh, in the same article by this uh, glass, uh, I'm not sure how his name's pronounced, uh, where he was arguing that many uh, mathematical results are arrived at by thought experiments. Uh, he also talks about the origin of uh, complex numbers and says, uh, points out that, um, in fact, uh, in some cases of uh, cubic equations, where it's known that there's a, a real solution, like this cubic equation, x cubed, equals 15x plus 4 can be easily shown to be satisfied if x is 4, which is a real number, and yet the methods that had to be developed in general to find the roots of cubic equations um, go through steps which um, end up with uh, these uh, complex uh, numbers. So uh, I, I really can't take time to go, uh, go further into that. But now let's, uh, let me, uh, return to this point of the inexhaustibility of um, these mathematical things. And this will be relevant for, um, I think, our question about the ultimate nature of uh, the universe, if you will, in that um, very simple thing, just as we saw in the triangle, which seems to be a trivial simple object, has inexhaustible complexity, uh, just as uh, Natural numbers, which seem like the most simple things, uh, have uh, inexhaustible complexity. Um, let's look at, um, we have these dynamical systems where you have chaos arise, arising out of uh, very simple operations, such as, I'm um, going to talk now about the Mandelbrot set, um, which involves complex numbers, because we're talking now about a complex plane where one coordinate is the real component of the number and the other is the imaginary component. And for, uh, to generate the Mandelbrot set, you choose any point in the complex plane, that is any complex number C. Uh, you square um, the number, add C to that, and then substitute that back in for C, and you just keep iterating this very simple process in short, you're just uh, uh, taking c squared plus c, generate a new c, and then going through the process again. 
Now, two things can happen depending on the choice of C. Um, if you, for some values of initial values of the C, uh, when you continue this iteration, it, your point C changes, which means you're moving around in this complex plane. But for some choices, it remains in a bounded region. You just keep orbiting around, so to speak, in one little uh, confined region. But for other points C that you start with, uh, the point quickly uh, moves off or further and further away. Now, if you divide, oh, and when the point is confined, it moves around making very beautiful patterns in the complex plane. So if the point, is, the point C happens to be one that stays bounded, it generates these kind of figures in the complex uh, plane. Actually, this one may be just outside the boundary, and perhaps this one too. Uh, if it's inside, uh, if, it's, if it remains bounded, then uh, you have, um, uh, no, I won't take time to go into that. This, uh, so now if you divide the plane into those points that stay bounded and those that wander off, you get the Mandelbrot set, which is shown in black here for the points that remain fixed. Uh, and there's much more structure here. If you magnify it, you see these things. For example, here's, these are called Julia sets, the orbits, the, or the, the set of points that the uh, point C goes through when you iterate. Uh, and this is a Julia set for a point around here in the Mandelbrot set. Here's a Julia set for a point around here in the Mandelbrot set. And here's a Julia set for a point around here in the Mandelbrot set. Um, but if you're outside, these Julia sets explode and just to a pattern of dust that spreads out. Um, but for the ones that stay bounded, they defined uh, this Mandelbrot set, which is a, a fascinating uh, structure. Uh, Feigen and Richter have made uh, some very beautiful pictures uh, illustrating the Mandelbrot set. What they use color coding here. Uh, when you're outside the Mandelbrot set, the color is an indicator of how rapidly the point C is moving off from the Mandelbrot set, whereas the dark part uh, is where it stays. And all parts of the Mandelbrot set are connected. Now, if you take the Mandelbrot set, it turns out it has little copies of itself. So out here, uh, there's a little uh, part of the Mandelbrot set. They're all connected, but it kind of duplicates this part. You can see it here, magnified. Now, if you take just that part of that set, magnified, you see this. And it's got all these little objects that resemble the Mandelbrot set. And, um, but they each have a slightly different uh, shape and identity. Uh, let's just, I'm going to have to wind up quickly. I haven't even gotten to ethics. Um, here's Mandelbrot. Let's just zoom in on a point here. Here's the coordinates, the real and imaginary coordinate. And you just zoom in on that uh, closer and closer. So, uh, so each time here, the box shows uh, this box up here shows the region we're going to look at next. So we take that region, magnify it, and it looks like that. And then we take a little region from that and magnify it. It looks like this. And we take a region from that and magnify it, or zoom in on it, and it looks like that. And then we take uh, a region
region from that. We're just going deeper and deeper into this boundary of the Mandelbrot set. Uh, and it looks like that. And we take that region and zoom in on that, and it looks like that. And we take that region in the middle and zoom in, and it looks like uh, this. And we take uh, that little region there and magnify it or zoom in on it. And it looks like that and so on. And here again is the little nanoboats. <laughs> this is a million times uh, zoomed in a million fold. So um, it's a million times smaller than the original Mandelbrot set. Here indeed it seems that we confront uh, uh, wheels within wheels, caverns, measureless demand, world without end. And so this I think is an interesting model for what might be true in the universe um, where we have very simple principles that govern the, uh, that produce the rich structure in the world. Um, and I think there's something rather, I am a little over here, um, although um, it's only been about an hour since I started talking. Um, there's a rather uh, miraculous thing about the world and that is that we have this kind of level hierarchy from uh, quarks and atoms up to molecules, emergence of life and emergence of mind. And the interesting thing is that these, down at these low levels, we have very succinct uh, equations that seem to characterize what's going on, such as I showed you earlier. Uh, so it's very simple in a way, and yet each level provides for everything that happens at the next level. Not that, not that you adequately or understandably characterize the phenomena at each level in terms of what's going on at the lowest level, but nevertheless each level has provided what is needed for the next level to emerge. Uh, we don't know what the lowest level is. Um, and of course, with the emergence of mind, we have something extraordinary, and that is the comprehension of what's going on at these lower uh, levels. So it's very much like uh, um, oh boy, well, it's. Uh, very much like this circle I showed earlier. Any rate, um, what am I going to do here? Um, I think I'm going to have to um, skip some things and just kind of um, say briefly about ethics. <laughs> uh, in fact, I don't have too much to say about ethics. Uh, but it's something that uh, seems to me of the utmost importance. Um, and what I'm, the basic idea that I'd like to put forward to you is that um, it's, there's been this sharp dichotomy that's traditional between, uh, well, just as there has been a sharp dichotomy between 
uh, empirical facts about the world and mathematical principles, which I claim may be blurred and that maybe uh, these aren't root or the same thing, uh, there's traditionally been a distinction between what is the case and what ought to be the case. And science deals with what is the case. They're trying to find out what is true in the physical world, say. Um, and what ought to be the case is something that you can never get at from any study of what is the case. So scientists may have various views that they uh, state quite emphatically, like um, uh, we must be careful to protect the biodiversity on Earth, uh, and we must, uh, we must think about the possibility that a, a comet or a huge asteroid could someday uh, collide with the Earth and find some way, use our technology to discover uh, anybody that's on collision courses with the Earth and find some way of deflecting it before it destroys human life. People feel very strongly about these things, but, you, but if you push them back and say, well, why should we do that? Why should we preserve human life? Why should we preserve uh, biodiversity? Uh, why should we try to um, find a way of stopping uh, wars? There's no uh, answer. I mean, it's like this hierarchy of physics where you ask, why does the equation have the form it does? You can only justify it by referring to a higher level and saying, well, it must have because it's a special case of this higher principle. Uh, but if you keep pushing person back on ethical, moral questions, um, they finally run to a point where they can't justify it on some grander uh, principle. They say, well, it's just, I just feel that that's the way it is. Um, yet, I believe it's a mistake to say that we don't have uh, it's true you cannot get value from fact, perhaps. Uh, so you cannot deduce that we should do something from any fact of nature um, in the way we usually think of facts. But yet I would claim we all have direct uh, knowledge that some things are good and some things are bad because we have experience. Uh, we're, not just, um, we're not just collections of molecules moving around the world. We have direct experience, we experience quality, we experience pain and suffering. We know what it's like to have freedom limited. Um, and I emphasize, I'm going to have to be very brief here, I've emphasized uh, over and over the, the role of not only our direct experience, but our intuitive wisdom about mathematical principles. And so if we, if we make this leap beyond solipsism, um, and say, um, I believe there are other minds, um, then, we, and if we accord to these other minds a value such as our own and, and agree that these other individuals can experience joy or suffering um, or restraint and so on, uh, just as we do, uh, then we invoke the principle of symmetry and say uh, we, we should, if we really give accord another person the status that we accord ourselves, then there should be, uh, there should be invariance under permutation. This is the principle of symmetry. And I believe this is really ultimately, uh, in some ways, the intuitive basis for uh, uh, well, I don't have the right slide right here, but at any rate, uh, getting down to the Something that is pretty universally recognized, anyone who's uh, 
dealt with ethics are these principles of the uh, golden rule uh, or Kant's categorical imperative or Rawls's theory of justice, which are all uh, rooted, I think, ultimately in this idea. Let me just talk briefly about, very briefly about uh, Rawls' theory of justice. Um, he says uh, the, the problems with, with trying to arrive at ethical principles is that everyone has their own bias. The person who has, if you ask, how should we set up an ideal society um, that would be just and good? Uh, and wealth, the person sitting around the table that has a lot of wealth wants to make sure that whatever the society is, that they don't lose their wealth. Um, or the person that has political power wants to make sure whatever the uh, proposed uh, change in the rules governing society shouldn't uh, lose their power. So what uh, Rawls says is we want, uh, if you're really thinking about the principles, you have to divorce yourself from, from your particular position, and you have to have this invariant center permutation, as I would describe it, where you have to say, let's think about what the principles should be if we had what Rawls calls the veil of ignorance, where we don't know which which role we're going to be assigned in this ideal society. And then we get rid of this um, bias. Well, there's an enormous amount that can be uh, said about this. Um, but I, uh, I've, I've come to the view that uh, the way we arrive can arrive at ethical or moral principles is not fundamentally that different from the way we, one does arrive at scientific principles. Um, and um, uh, and partly I'm led to this by a rather, perhaps somewhat peculiar view of science that I have tried to articulate. And I'm sorry that I haven't left time to really develop more fully the um, uh, ethical conclusions. But I think I'd better... Hmm? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'll just make a couple of further points and then open it to uh, questions. Um, of course, against any proposal on this line, people can quickly point out a lot of things. One is that we don't seem to have seen a lot of convergence uh, towards some general agreed theory uh, in ethics or moral law as we have seen in, in science. In fact, we see um, incredible, it seems, incredible diversity um, uh, in the principles that hold in different societies. Uh, yeah, my idea is that this is, uh, that this is uh, a reflection that we're just in the beginnings of an attempt to move in the direction I'm proposing, which would be uh, a process not unlike that that I claim that can give rise to our understanding of the physical world, namely a process of kind of a Socratic dialogue in which one tries to get access to some of one's uh, inner wisdom about what is right or what is wrong, tries to formulate principles, uh, and then uh, notices that um, they're not always consistent with each other, or they're not developed sufficiently to deal with certain cases, and try to work more and more towards a consistent 
system. Now, some people might say, well, uh, you can't have any principles of ethics, uh, and the ethical person is one who just does the right thing uh, in a given situation. It's not that they uh, have some um, articulated principles. Um, well, this is true. They probably don't have articulated principles, but just as in science we try to convert to explicitly formulated principles, that's what I think we need to do. And that's what, what you do when you try to justify an action you make. You try to invoke some principle, but we need uh, a consistent uh, set. Now, um, uh, when there's some there's some cultures in India, for example, uh, where they have very specific rules that seem very strange to us. Uh, I heard a talk by uh, some. Uh, anthropologist or ethnologist or something about some village in India that was studied. Um, and uh, just one rule I remember was that um, it was forbidden for a widow to eat fish. Seems to make no sense uh, to most of us here, I suppose. Uh, there was some rationale for it, um, and there are probably a number of converging things that led to that particular principle there. Uh, but one of the things that led to it, apparently, was the idea that uh, once a woman's husband had died, she was to remain celibate. And, um, and they had some notion that somehow fish made you more uh, sexually interested and so on. And so there was, that was part of it, why they were not to eat fish. Well, there's all kinds, many religions and cultures have all kinds of little rules like this. Uh, and they seem very important to those people, but they seem rather bizarre to people from other cultures. There's all this diversity. Um, and in general, uh, ethnologists, and one thing I'd hoped to talk about here today but didn't have time for was um, uh, studies that I've done in uh, cross, some cross-cultural investigations of music. And when I got into that, I was struck by the fact that um, when I read what ethnomusicologists wrote, uh, we, were, we did a study particularly comparing Western listeners with listeners in the remote uh, village in Bali, uh, a village where actually these pe we had good evidence these people had never been exposed to Western music, which is rapidly getting to be very hard to find. Um, and when I read what the ethnomusicologists said, they always were looking for differences. They would go over to, say, Indonesians, and study, and their view was, well the, well, the fact was that they point out that in each village, the gamelan was tuned slightly differently, and this was very important to them, and they had, the, the music was based on these scales, the paylog and cylindro scales, which are, they claim, totally different from our uh, Western diatonic scales, and uh, everything, and the idea is you have to go into a particular village and immerse yourself in that culture to understand it, Everything was focused on differences. Now, as a cognitive scientist, um, I and also my students have a different point of view. Namely, we're looking for universals of the human mind. And we looked at the same data and information and came to a very different conclusion. Yes, the, the slendro and paylog scale are different from the diatonic scale. And yes, their tunings were different in each village. Nevertheless, at a more abstract level, 
they all had something in common and in fact it appears that across all cultures there's some very fundamental things that are invariant um, namely that uh, regardless of how many notes they have in each octave they do divide each octave into a fixed number of tones and out of however many tones they use in each octave it's generally five or seven tones that are the principal tones that they're using there's generally a hierarchy of tonal functions where some tone is the principal tone in a given uh, key, such as, uh, uh, which would correspond to the tonic tone in our system, but would be the gong tone in the uh, Bali and so on. Um, and furthermore, there seems to be very deep uh, cognitive and even abstract group theoretic reasons for this. It's interesting that um, the uh, Almost all of the work that has been done on trying to understand why the diatonic system as a structure it is has been based on acoustic features, frequency ratios, uh, things about beats between the harmonics of the tones and so on, focusing completely on the acoustic physically studied thing. And, and that does lead to one... Um, uh, it's really a miraculous thing. I, I can't resist showing you a couple of pictures here. Yes. Let me just show you. The, here's the standard way of approaching this problem. You probably can't see the details, but suppose we ask, well, why is the octave divided in a certain number of tones? Uh, here you, you could look at different numbers of tones that you could divide the octave into. Um, and now here's frequency ratios. One to one, that would be the unison. Two to one, that's the octave. And then you have these other simple integer ratios of frequencies that correspond to the perfect fifth, the perfect fourth, the major third, uh, and other important musical intervals that are important in virtually all uh, cultures. And we draw lines down, and we see if we divided the octave into equal numbers, of equal space tones, uh, we find that for some ways you could divide it, uh, the frequency ratios, uh, simple frequency ratios don't come close to any of the points. But something uh, happens here when you divide it into 12 equal steps, namely that you find you have points quite close to these simple integer frequency ratios. And that, uh, it's claimed, is why we have divided this scale into 12 tones. You don't get an equally good thing until you get down to 19 tones, and then there's some other ones. Of course, as you go down, you get more and more because there's so many tones that are close to something or other. Um, and that's generally regarded as the basis but it doesn't really uh, explain it fully. And a student, a former student of mine, Jerry Balzano, came up with a very different idea uh, that has nothing to do with frequency ratios except that it does start with the octave. And it uses purely group theoretic kind of symmetry considerations. And, and, um, and it turns out that if you, um, here we're talking not about of course, we have 12 tones, and we pick out seven of those as being in the major, say, diatonic scale. And um, so if you have 12 tones and pick out seven tones, uh, you get a uniquely good uh, ability to um, satisfy the conditions that you can have a tone like the tonic tone that is defined by its relation to all other tones. If you have this 
if you've picked out tones that are equally spaced on the whole tone scale, you can't have anything in the scale that defines a fixed structure with respect to which you can have motion, with respect to which you can have a buildup of tension and resolution and things that give the dynamics to uh, Western music. Uh, but it turns out just, I can't go into this, but it's purely group theoretic considerations that have nothing to do with frequency ratios that tells you the best system is one that um, takes 12 tones and it picks out seven with an unequal spacing such as we have in the diatonic, uh, uh, diatonic system. So we get this miraculous thing where from two different perspectives that are quite different, the traditional acoustic one and the group theoretic one, um, they only synchronize here at 12 uh, with any reasonable number of tones. Uh, this is the group theoretic one, which uh, is the uh, product of C3 and C4. Well, anyway, um, so I believe that there's very deep uh, reasons for um, this, and I believe this is uh, universal, and we did an experiment comparing uh, Balinese listeners with uh, Western listeners and found evidence that they're, even though their music is very different, sounds totally strange, each culture's music sounds totally strange to the other, we were able to show that there was some common, at a deep level, there were some common structural things in the way they responded to our musical tests. So, um, uh, I gotta stop here. There's, there's too many things that I could get involved in. Let me uh, open it up to uh, questions. And this time I'll try to if you'll do me a favor and keep your question short, I'll try to repeat it because I was told nobody could hear what the questions were last time. If your question gets too involved, I won't be able to repeat it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Could people hear that? I'm not sure I could re, 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 could hear it good. Okay. Uh, well, I, I agree with what you say, but there's one limitation to it, and that is um, it's, um, there's this distinction between a descriptive and a normative approach to 
moral law or ethics or whatever you want to call it. Um, and indeed, we, uh, I believe, as uh, with something that I think is consistent with what you were saying, namely that we have, through natural selection, uh, species come to uh, be good at, the members of species are good at uh, uh, surviving and reproducing, and and in order to do that, they have to have a accurate perception of uh, the world and so on, as I was emphasizing in my talk on uh, Tuesday. Um, and you can have a descriptive approach to ethics, which is a science. It's perfect, a perfectly good science where you can explain why animals behave the way they do and why humans behave they do and why they will even express the opinions they do about what is good and bad. Uh, but if you ultimately base um, ethical theory on the, on the um, uh, basic premise that the human race should flourish and uh, survive and reproduce uh, indefinitely, uh, that you can always ask, well, why? Why should, why should that? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.